Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing. I'm Hannah White and stepping into the presenter's chair for this week and it really is quite a week because Brexit means, well, actually we still don't know. With just 21 days to go until the UK leaves the Brexit transition period, a future trade deal has yet to be signed. Last night, Boris Johnson dined with EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen to try and break the impasse. We'll look at what this dinner date meant for the Brexit talks. But there has at least been some Brexit progress. The EU and the UK have agreed a way forward on the Northern Ireland Protocol, which means the UK is no longer threatening to break international law. A good thing. I think we can all agree. We'll take a closer look. And whatever happens, whatever is or is not signed on December the 31st, the UK will leave the transition period. But are we ready for whatever comes next, deal or no deal, on the first day of 2021? To make sense of all of this, I'm going to be joined in the studio by a rolling cast of IFG experts who between them have thought more, read more, talked more and tweeted more about Brexit these last few years than is probably good for them. With me throughout is Maddie Timont-Jack, who leads our Brexit team. Hi, Maddie. Hi, Hannah. Now, you've watched every episode of the Brexit box set. Are you still gripped as we reach the denouement? I mean, I think yes is the simple answer. I am very much closely watching what's going on. And I really do want to see this sort of process through, see what we end up with in the end. Although I also think I probably can speak for quite a lot of people listening that, you know, it has been four long years. and I think everyone is getting quite tired. I have been regaling the team with stories of my Brexit dreams um, recently. So, so I do think that we'll all be looking forward to sort of seeing some kind of resolution, hopefully, over the next couple of weeks. And a big welcome to our guest today, Tom McTague, who's staff writer at The Atlantic. Hi, Tom. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. How are you feeling about the looming deadline? (laughs) I never know how to feel, actually. I think uh, my emotions go up and down. Sometimes I think, oh, just rip the plaster off and let's get on with it. Let's see what's going to happen. Um, And other times I think, no, you've got to keep going. You know, it would be ludicrous to, to stop. Uh, some artificial deadline. So um, I'm, I think I'm all over the place, I'm afraid. It's not surprising, I think. We'll start with the latest Brexit developments in Brussels. Maddie, from what we know of how the dinner went last night, what does it tell us about the state of the talks? Well, I think our sort of headline takeaway is is ultimately that nothing has changed. You know, we're not really any further along than we were after the conversation um, at the end of last week and the beginning of this week. I mean, you know, I, we obviously know that the two sides have agreed to continue talking, which at this stage sort of, you know, means a deal definitely is still on the table. Um, they obviously spent quite a long time last night talking about the different issues. Um, but, you know, publicly, there has not been any suggestion that they've got any further on any of the key sticking points. Um, and, you know, they've sort of nominally said that Sunday really will be the moment at which they're called time. So um, their chief negotiators, Michel Barnier and David Frost, will continue talks until then. Um, but we all know that the only sort of deadline that really matters is the 31st of December. Um, and so I think at this moment, I sort of am holding back judgment as to whether or not this has necessarily swung the dial in favour of a deal or, or in favour of no deal. I sort of feel like we're still in this process where it sort of feels slightly like Groundhog Day, where they've they've met, they've talked, they've agreed that three sticking points remain, and they've agreed to carry on talks. And if they were to reach a deal, what would then have to happen between now and the end of the year for that to be put in place? 
So there are sort of two processes that need to happen um, to sort of actually ratify any agreement. And this is sort of in the EU side, but also on the UK side. So in the EU, um, we know that the council needs to make a decision on whatever agreement has been reached. Um, and also there will need to be a vote in the European Parliament to before any deal can be ratified. Now, depending on the scope of a deal, depending on what areas it covers, there might also need to be votes in the national parliaments in member states. Um, but there could be a decision made at the council level that actually, even if um, the agreement touches on areas of member state law or sort of shared competence, um, they'll actually agree that actually they'll only do it at the EU level just to speed up that process. Now, one of the big debates has been what happens if the European Parliament doesn't have enough time to scrutinise and then vote on the deal before the end of the year? Because traditionally, they, you know, committees in the Parliament would look at it and they'd want to have a debate on what the content says. Now, in that scenario, there has been a suggestion that the European Council, the Council of the EU could decide to provisionally apply any agreement and then allow the European Parliament to vote on it in the beginning of next year. We haven't really heard that confirmation from the EU, but that has been some speculation. And I think that as, as the sort of clock runs down, that, that debate probably will continue. On the UK side, it's sort of more straightforward. We're not going to have some big bang vote in the same way as we've had on previous deals. Although at the same time, because the deal needs to apply in domestic law, it does look like the government will be bringing forward some primary legislation that will need to get through Parliament before the end of the year. So there will be sort of a moment when we might sort of say, oh, well, this is Parliament approving the deal. But really, it will be about passing the legislation to implement a deal. And as we sort of know, and those sort of long term listeners of the podcast will know, government does control part time, particularly in the House of Commons. So if necessary, you can do that very quickly. Thanks, Maddie. And Tom, I mean, in terms of whether any of that is going to happen, there's going to be a deal to, to for anyone to think about ratifying or not. Are we basically just getting down to a question of what Boris Johnson does or doesn't want, essentially? Yes, I was thinking about this the other day, and I, and I and it did occur to me that it, we're in a, in a quite extraordinary situation. Um, and I I think you could make a reasonable argument that he is the most powerful prime minister we've seen, uh, certainly since Thatcher. If you go back to Thatcher and you think she was brought down essentially because of divisions over her European policy. So she was not completely in charge of her European policy. She was forced into doing things uh, into tying Britain into uh, further European integration in a way that she felt uncomfortable with. Uh, because her chancellor and foreign secretary supported it. Blair, similarly, couldn't go as far as he wanted to go in the opposite direction because of the Treasury. Today, we've got Boris Johnson, who seems in total control of whether we sign to this deal or whether we leave with no deal, which would be by far the most radical um, policy, British policy towards Europe, that any prime minister has pursued since going in. So I think that is quite an extraordinary situation. But how much of, of the decision that they're going to end up making is actually about party management, do you think? I think it is about party management. But then again, it looks like he has the numbers to do whatever he wants. Right. So if, if he signs up to the deal, it should be fine. You know, people are talking about 40 members of parliament who could cause him trouble. And now that is, you know, significant. Um, and he obviously doesn't want that. That essentially starts to um, leave his majority at almost zero. But the Labour Party have said they're going to support it. All the other parties will support it because it's better than no deal. So he can get this thing through. And I still think he has a lot of personal power here. 
in that the Conservative Party is still the party that was effectively saved by Boris Johnson at the last election. Um, because, you know, on his sort of personal shoulders, he managed to drag them over the line from the threat of Nigel Farage. So I think we are in a, in a very uh, significant situation. And I, and I think it is not necessarily um, a, a great situation for, for the country that so much power is invested in one man. And in terms of the UK's power, do you think the reason we've ended up where we are now is because we overplayed our sort of hopes of being able to talk to Macron and Merkel over the sort of heads of the of the commission. Do you think that was a miscalculation? I think we've made that miscalculation over and over again throughout this um, Brexit process. I think you could go back and um, write a history of 2016 to 2020 as uh, a series of British failures uh, of diplomacy and foreign policy, um, right from the get-go, right from not having a clear idea of what we wanted to achieve from Brexit. I remember speaking to a senior European um, advisor who was saying, if Britain had moved very quickly with a concrete plan before the European Union managed to come to its own conclusions about what was important to it, then we might be in a very different different situation from what we're in today. But that obviously never happened. And I think I remember the Salzburg um, summit where Theresa May again was seeking to go over the heads of the commission and to appeal to European leaders and was rejected. I think in some ways you could say that this is a defining moment for the EU as well in that they have shown a level of kind of solidarity, which is almost like a national solidarity, that they're putting the interests of small countries and small industries above the wider concerns about, um, you know, German industry, as we constantly hear, or, the, you know, German car manufacturers or anything like that that we've been told about over and over again. That's not the case. They've actually shown amazing solidarity towards Ireland, you know, French fishermen now, um, in a way that I don't think Britain quite has been able to do. Britain hasn't been as unified as one single state as the European Union has managed to be as 27. And that is a fundamental challenge to Britain and its sense of um, national solidarity that it is going to now have to face for the next few years. Can it can it bring back that sense of um, collective endurance, collective um, mission, all of these things which don't appear to be there right now? Yes, indeed. And if we end up with a no deal, whether in fact the, that sort of those divisions end up getting wider. Maddie, Tom's spoken really interesting about the, interestingly about the history there. You watched all those sort of meaningful votes that, that Theresa May lost. If she'd won one of those... Do you think we'd be in the same situation that we are in now? I think, I mean, I think that's an interesting question. It's obviously always dangerous to go down sort of uh, counter history points uh, at that sort of path. But if we sort of go back to what would have happened if Theresa May had won one of the meaningful votes, then what she would have had to do was go on and negotiate a future relationship with the EU, which is exactly what this government is currently doing. Now, you know, her sort of vision for the future relationship with the EU was a closer relationship. It was more integrated. There would have been, she was looking for sort of less friction. But, you know, we still would have entered into 
into negotiations, we still, they probably would have gone down to the wire. There probably would have been some sticking points that we would have talked about quite a lot. So, sort of, you know, we were speculating about no deal under Theresa May as well. But I do think that the sort of difference that we would have had in a, in, if Theresa May was still prime minister is that we, we know and we sort of saw that last year that ultimately she wasn't willing to countenance no deal. And in particular, she wasn't willing to countenance it because she was concerned about what it would mean for the union. And so I do think that we, we probably would have been in a position where we might have seen an agreement reached sooner. But as I said, I do think that much of the sort of following 21 months, because we would have had 21 months, not not 11 months, um, would have been taken up with discussions about whether or not the EU and the UK would be willing to set aside principle to, to reach an agreement. So I do think that sort of would have happened anyway. Tom, I'm not going to make you predict at this stage the outcome, but <laughs> if we don't get a deal... Who do you think will take the blame? Will it will it work for Boris Johnson to say this is down to EU intransigence, do you think? Partly, yes. I think, you know, if you look at the polls today, uh, we've had probably the worst year for Britain, uh, certainly in my lifetime. Um, you know, we've performed terribly during the pandemic and we haven't achieved almost anything in Brexit. And yet he's still level pegging in the polls with the Labour Party. Uh, the country seems pretty divided right now. Uh, and, and that's really England is pretty divided. Uh, Scotland is a different political environment now, as is Northern Ireland. And Wales is, is starting to diverge. So I think, um, as you saw with, um, with the US election, you know, there is a sizable vote and a stable vote for parties and politicians that are very um, divisive. So I, I can kind of see the, the, the problems that we have getting deeper. Um, and this is the sort of the, the issue with Brexit is that I, I think if you look at the union and you look at the future of politics, it seems that it can go both ways very quickly. Brexit is the, the biggest threat to the union, as Theresa May and Tony Blair and John Major and others identified. But it also has the potential to make it stronger because it makes leaving the UK so much harder. And it's the same with um, the same with, the pol with politics, I think. It has the potential to just um, solidify these divisions permanently. Or it could do something like what's happened in Switzerland or Norway, where the votes there were very close on whether to join the European Union or not. And now there is overwhelming consensus not to. I can easily see a situation in, in four years' time where uh, Keir Starmer says, promises as part of his Labour Party manifesto, not to have a referendum in the next parliament. And that therefore pretty much um, guarantees Britain's non-membership of the European Union. That's really interesting. So let's turn from what hasn't been agreed to what actually has been, and that's progress on the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's a bit technical, but massively important. And Jess Sargent, the IFG's expert on all of this, joins us now. Hi, Jess. Hello. So can you run us through what's been agreed and who's agreed it? Yes. So earlier this week, uh, the UK and the EU announced that they had a reached agreement in principle on all outstanding issues on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, and they've agreed this through the Joint Committee, uh, which is the UK-EU body responsible for overseeing the implementation of the withdrawal agreement. So this is separate to negotiations, although politically, you could argue um, they are slightly linked. Um, so the 
the decisions that the Joint Committee has made kind of broadly fall into three categories. So the first category are decisions that were explicitly deferred to it under the Withdrawal Agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, so there are certain decisions there um, around the goods considered at risk of moving from um, Great Britain into Northern Ireland and then into the EU that would be subject to tariffs. Um, also some things around the limits for um, agricultural support and some technical stuff on um which, uh, which fishery and aquaculture products aren't subject to tariffs. Um, the second category of things are things that since the protocol has been agreed, the UK or the EU have asked for, um, and they relate to some of the powers that the UK government um, ended up taking in the UK Internal Market Bill, which I think we'll come on to speak a bit um, a bit more about later. Um, but they're the kind of added extras. Um, and then the third category of things are uh, specific mitigations that have been agreed between the UK and the EU to help things run more smoothly um, at the Irish sea border at the end of the year. Um, so kind of three different types of decisions but I think in general this is definitely something we should we should welcome um, it brings a lot of clarity to businesses who have been really struggling with the continuing uncertainty of exactly how the protocol will operate um, and I think it also shows that the UK and the EU can have quite a constructive approach to an issue that ended up being quite fraught um, so I think all in all a good sign um, both for Northern Ireland and for UK and EU relationships more generally. And does it mean that the issues that the UK government was proposing to break international law over have all been resolved? So it looks like it, or certainly they've at least been resolved to the extent that the UK government has agreed to remove those powers from the bill. Um, the devil is always in the detail. Um, and speaking to you now on Thursday morning, we don't quite have the full text of what's been agreed. Um, but the two powers to which um, the UK internal market bill powers related, one on exit summary decorations, which is that little piece of paper that we would be required on goods moving between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. It looks like they found a way to waive that. So that will allow the UK government to deliver on its commitment to unfettered access for Northern Ireland businesses to Great Britain. The other issue was around state aid. There was concern that the provisions in the protocol that applied EU state aid law to Northern Ireland might have reach back um, for businesses in Great Britain. And according to the joint statement, there has been a clarification from, on the EU side that has um, allayed the UK concerns on that matter. And then the third issue was the government, the UK government was potentially going to introduce um, um, some more powers in the taxation bill, um, which would have unilaterally defined that at-risk criteria that I mentioned earlier was explicitly a decision for the Joint Committee. Because the Joint Committee has now um, made a decision on that, um, what they've done is they've created a trusted trader scheme, which will mean there'll be no goods on um, estimates, put it about 98% of, of goods coming between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, so it certainly looks like those those decision, those areas have been resolved, at least to the UK government's satisfaction, uh, but we'll have to wait to see exactly um, the nitty gritty details of that. Tom, do you think that this breakthrough, this agreement on Northern Ireland makes a deal between the UK and the EU more or less likely now? In a weird way, I'm going to be annoying. I think it does both. <laughs> because <laughs> um, I think... The, the reality of the uh, Northern Irish backstop or protocol is that it is the tool that allows Great Britain to diverge from the European Union more. So if you go back to the Theresa May deal, uh, it, this was always the thing that it founded on. It um, She essentially put the union first and 
sovereignty and divergence second. She was prepared to be more tied into the European Union as a whole of the UK rather than see any kind of uh, border between GB and Northern Ireland. And Boris Johnson essentially made the exact opposite calculation and was prepared to see Northern Ireland tied to the EU so that Britain could diverge. And that now is on steroids. And we're going to see uh, with no deal, um, we, we have, because we've got this protocol agreed now, Britain can go into a sort of no deal situation and Northern Ireland won't be disrupted quite as much um, as it might have been uh, a couple of days ago when uh, Britain was threatening to break international law. So in a way, you've dealt with one issue, you can go for no deal now and, you know, peace in Northern Ireland and all the rest is, is secure. Um, but I do think politically it has been uh, something that uh, eases tensions and allows, um, uh, you know, suggests that, we're, you know, the compromise is in the air. Um, but I must admit, you know, I'm, I'm becoming more pessimistic about a deal um, as we get closer and closer uh, to the 31st. It really, uh, you know, last week I think I was 60-40 in favour of the deal and now I'm probably the opposite. Yes, it doesn't sound like the, the noises kept coming out of the dinner last night were particularly optimistic, does it? I agree with you on that. Maddie, isn't a border in the Irish Sea exactly what Theresa May and Boris Johnson said there wouldn't be? Well, yes, exactly. And I mean, as Tom has already said, that was that was sort of what ended up um, persuading Theresa May to sort of look to keep the whole of the UK within um, the UK, EU customs territory and then also committed to align GB to EU rules on goods, which is sort of what, what will continue to apply to Northern Ireland. Um, you know, Boris Johnson, that's exactly what he said as well at the start was, you know, there won't be a border in the Irish Sea. And obviously, again, he, he did make a choice. He, he wanted to allow GB to have the space to diverge, um, that actually he said, therefore, it's okay to sort of allow to avoid that hard border on the island of Ireland, um, will sort of essentially move that regulatory and customs border into the Irish Sea. Now, obviously, it's not an international border. You know, people can still move freely from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. Um, but it, what it does mean is that paperwork will apply, you know, you will still be needing some of those new systems to manage the customs paperwork, for example, that will still need to apply on goods moving from GB into NI. And, you know, Boris Johnson promised that wouldn't be the case but I think that you know we can see the, the writing on the page I mean that is the case um and that that as I say is a political choice that he made and Tom we've been talking about this very much from the point of view of Westminster politicians and what they want you've written about the Brexit effect on Northern Ireland itself what do you think that this decision means for the mood there and, and what will potentially happen in future yeah it's really interesting the the political situation in Northern Ireland I mean Essentially, there there is continued unionist anger in Northern Ireland that they have been portrayed by uh, by London, you know, and and actually this is a feeling that goes back all the way to 1920 and the establishment of Northern Ireland. There's a constant sense that Britain is just about to betray them and, and leave them, um, and I think though that has been tempered, and you've seen that now in the election. Um, they felt that Boris Johnson would get his comeuppance in the election. That didn't happen. There's been a kind of acceptance of the uh, of the status quo. And also, I think there is a middle class kind of middle of the road alliance kind of party um, acceptance among unionists that 
something that manages to keep the status quo is a good thing. So you're starting to see the divisions in the unionist position as well. So it's not just the case that the unionism in Northern Ireland is represented by the DUP. There are different shades of opinion. So I think the question is whether this kind of um, compromise position, which let's not forget, does keep Northern Ireland um, in the UK market and does make Northern Ireland more different from the Republic of Ireland than it was until recently, as well as making Northern Ireland more different to, to the rest of the UK. It kind of does this strange thing that it leaves Northern Ireland on its own as a very unique place. Um, and that, that kind of is represented in its politics as well. So I think it's a very complicated position, but it does seem um, that the politicians there have have accepted this uh, this solution for now. And do you think that's a sustainable position? How do you see, you know, the, obviously the Assembly is going to have to vote on the protocol in the coming years. Do you think you know, what could change? Um, is there going to be pressure for, for unification emerging or, or do you think that, the, that it will remain stable? Yeah, I mean, the, the, these are the big questions. I think the uh, consent mechanism is a really important innovation. The fact that it wasn't in the original backstop was its weakest, um, it was the most problematic element. It just bypassed Northern Ireland entirely and it just dealt with it through um, UK and the EU. And there were perfectly reasonable justifications for that. But having a consent mechanism grounds whatever future um, compromises agreed with, um, with some legitimacy in Northern Ireland. And I think from a unionist perspective, they feel a bit cornered by it because they know it's going to be very difficult to see how any future um, Stormont will reject this situation. So there is the potential there to ground it in public consent and to move on. Um, but then I think it really is a question of how how this will work and whether the arguments for it being the best of both worlds are stronger than the arguments that it's the worst of all worlds. And we just don't know the answer to that. And that's going to come down to, can Britain make this situation work economically for Northern Ireland? Don't forget, Northern Ireland was the richest part of the island of Ireland when um, uh, Ireland gained independence in, 19, in the 1920s. It is now the poorest part of the island of Ireland. It is not succeeded economically it's politically very problematic and it's con it, you know it relies on uh, compromise to to get anything through so there is a, there is a real problem with northern ireland and so jess from your point of view do you do you see this as stable are there other issues which have been kicked down the road um and and not sorted out yet in relation to northern ireland which which are going to need to be addressed um in the near future Yes, to some extent. So one of the big issues that Northern Ireland businesses were asking for um, were kind of special arrangements, particularly for supermarkets, um, because under the terms of the protocol, if you applied it strictly, um, kind of every Tesco's ham sandwich or M&S lasagna would need an export health certificate, which has a lot of cost. 
Um, there would also need to be fairly frequent checks in that area. Um, and that could have problems um, for continued supply. There's been some fairly major supermarkets that have said um, that the protocol would mean less choice for Northern Ireland consumers. Um, so on a temporary basis, the UK and the EU have agreed um, a three month grace period for these this particular type of paperwork and also some six months arrangements to get around some others like slightly strange rules around sausages and, and meat and, and things like this. Um, but those are only temporary. Um, so Gove did suggest in his statement yesterday that this would buy time for the UK and the EU to reach a more stable settlement on some of these issues. Um, so it's unclear here whether he was referring to the future relationship negotiations or some kind of other agreement that was being looked at in the joint committee. Um, but certainly, I think there is still concern from certain businesses in Northern Ireland. Um, so it's a welcome can kicked, um, because if it wasn't in place, I think we would see a lot more disruption at the border on the 1st of January. Um, but I think there is still the opportunity for more long term solutions. And I think it's important that the joint committee keep talking, because fundamentally, uh, the protocol will be in place for as long as the Northern Ireland Assembly continues to consent to it. Um, and I think the Joint Committee has a role under the protocol and both sides should take that role quite seriously um, and seeing how best it can work for the people of Northern Ireland. Thanks, Jess. Thanks very much for being with us. We're going to be talking about Brexit for most of the rest of 2020, but 2021 is the year in which the effects of leaving the EU are really going to be felt, whether we leave with a deal or not. There's been a government comms campaign, check, change and go is the slogan apparently, but it turns out that urging people to prepare for Brexit is quite hard to do during a pandemic. So how ready are we? Joining us now is a, next in our rolling cast of IFG Brexperts, Joe Marshall. Hi Joe. Hi Hannah. So Joe, how ready is the UK for the end of the year? Well, that is quite a big question. I think the short answer is the UK isn't ready. Um, I think the longer answer is that it's a very mixed picture. So we know at the end of the year that huge changes are coming, deal or no deal. There's going to be sort of new customs and regulatory checks at the border, lots of new rules and friction when trading with the EU. And being prepared for those changes is not just something the government can do, but it's a huge task for local authorities, public bodies and business as well. And we know that this year the government has been able to make progress in its preparations despite COVID and everything else that's been going on. The government has sort of uh, opened up its new immigration system for registrations and that will take effect from January. It's made good progress in registering EU citizens who live in the UK. Lots of regulators in areas like competition are ready to take on functions from the EU. And the UK has managed to roll over quite a few trade deals that it has benefited from as a member of the EU. In other areas, I suppose government progress has been less good. At the GB EU border, the Great Britain EU border, I think the government's just about on track to deliver the IT systems, infrastructure and people it needs to make that border work. Um, but it's doing that quite late in the day. And so it will be harder for some of the traders who will need to work with those uh, processes and systems to make their own preparations. And I think, uh, you know, the uncertainty that Jess was talking about around the Northern Ireland Protocol means that progress in preparing things on the ground for the Irish Sea border has been uh, far behind schedule and is a real concern. And then I think the other sort of main issue and probably the biggest area of concern for the end of the year is business preparations. And I think this is where sort of a punishing mix of COVID and a huge sort of economic effect of COVID. The very short time frame, remember, the government chose not to extend the transition period when it could back in summer and uncertainty over the outcome of negotiations, um, coupled with sort of 
potentially quite poor government comms in some areas has left many firms sort of unaware or unable to prepare, you know, unable to have the bandwidth, not even to follow the Brexit process, let alone take the steps they need. I mean, it is worth saying business preparation is not a uniform picture. And in some areas, preparation is more advanced, uh, you know, highly regulated services sector like professional services or legal and financial services um, are better prepared, in part because they've known that the writing was on the wall for a while, that a free trade agreement wasn't going to provide very much for them and that they'd have to make big preparations either way, but also because their regulators pushed them to make lots of preparations ahead of a possible no deal last year, and they'd be be able to carry those forward. I think the final thing I'd then say is that, I mean, ultimately, when we talk about how ready is the UK, there's a bit of a question about what being ready means. And I think the scale of the changes coming and the speed at which they're having to be made means that the UK is never going to be fully ready. Uh, Not all businesses are going to be prepared and some bits of government processes and systems may have teething problems. So I think the question was really about driving that readiness as far as possible. And also a big part of sort of business and government preparations is not only being ready for those changes coming into effect at the end of the year, but also being ready to handle the inevitable disruption that is expected, at least initially, as sort of traders adapt to those new rules and new processes and systems bed in. And given that we're now kind of in mid-December and the, so the, the deadline is very f- rapidly approaching, when we talk about preparations, we're not really talking about what we can do in the next couple of weeks, are we? What, what more is there going to be to do once we're actually into 2021? I think that is a, a, a good question. I think yeah, we are in this sort of limbo position where if people aren't prepared now, it is unlikely that you know, a lot of progress can be made in the next couple of weeks. I mean, in some areas, some bits of preparation simply can't be made until we know the outcome of negotiations. So, for instance, rules of origin. So this is where if we get a deal, uh, there might be tariff and quota-free access, which is something businesses really wanted, but that's not unconditional. And to benefit from that, uh, firms need to uh, prove where their goods come from and make sure they comply with different rules. And we've already heard from lots of sectors, such as automotive sectors and others, that simply the time available means they're not going to be able to comply with those rules by January because they won't be able to, uh, they don't know the detail, they won't be able to prove that their goods comply. And so they might not be able to benefit from some of those uh, parts of a deal, even if one is reached. And I think it is right to say that the end of the year is not the end of Brexit preparations. Um, So we have sort of a sprint to the end of the year, trying to prepare as much as possible. But then turning into a marathon next year, where in actual fact, the UK government in particular has decided where it can to phase in some Brexit changes over time. So we know, for instance, that full controls on imports to Great Britain from the EU at the border will be phased in over six months. And we know that new sort of regulatory frameworks in areas like chemicals, product standards, financial services are also going to be phased in over time. So there are various grace periods, certain EU authorizations will be accepted for a period. And altogether, this sort of creates quite a complex patchwork of timeframes and deadlines that businesses and government need to prepare for. So I think it's one of these things where, you know, as Maddie was talking about at the very start, I think you know we are all looking forward to this period where Brexit might not be sort of forefront of everyone's attention and sort of uh, causing all of this sort of uh, pressure. But at the same time, it isn't going to go away. And you know there is a very complicated set of things that are going to happen next year as well. So we can't take our eye off Brexit just yet. I'm loving your metaphors, Joe. I've got an image of a, a marathon being run over a watershed. Um, Maddie, what will 
will people in the in the real world notice come the first of January? So it's sort of, I mean, it's sort of two different aspects of this question. I think. I mean, on the one hand, people in the real world will notice some of the effects that Joe has just been outlining. So you know, if if um, a lot of traders aren't ready for for the new processes at the border. We might see some of the queues in Kent that's been talked about quite a lot. These are sort of the the sort of visual things that we might see both read about in the papers or if we live in Kent, um, get a sort of uh, first first eye view of it. But but there's also the sort of other changes to how we interact as sort of individuals with the, with the EU that I think people will also slowly realise, although again, I don't think it's going to be a sort of one big change on the 1st of January. But, you know, travelling to the EU will become more difficult. So you need to, for example, make sure you've got six months on your passport, which currently you don't need. You also will need to think about the fact that we'll no longer have European health insurance cards. So if you are going to the EU, you need to make sure that your travel insurance covers um, sort of certain health conditions. So for example, pre-existing conditions is one of the things that currently you can get treatment on with the European health insurance card, but you might need to pay for slightly more expensive travel insurance when you go abroad. Um, The other one that I think a lot of people have been talking about is pet passports. so you'll no longer have an EU pet passport. You'll have to get a different one. Um, this the sort of level of um, uh, sort of hassle this will be will depend on whether or not we're listed as a country. Um, if we're unlisted, then you need to visit your vet four months before you're taking your your pet abroad. And this applies to, I should say, very specifically dogs, cats and ferrets. I don't know quite how many people are taking ferrets into the EU, but that is worth um, noting. Um, But the other thing, just more broadly, is, you know, free movement is coming to an end. And, you know, at the moment, we we are able to go and live um, and spend time in the EU completely without sort of any any additional um, hurdles. And so, you know, if you are looking, if you want to move abroad, you're going to have to look at the migration scheme of specific individual member states. You know, you're likely to have to have a job off for, you know, all of those sorts of things that, that we'd have if we were looking to move to other countries outside the EU. And there's also just, and I think this is something that has come up, I think the Telegraph sort of splashed in it recently um, for those second homeowners, where we'll also be sort of having to follow the rule now where you, you can only spend 90 out of 180 days in the Schengen area at a time. So it, it will just be different. And I think that that's something that people won't necessarily, as I say, see on the 1st of January, particularly during COVID times when people aren't traveling as much. Um, but over the next year, I think that is something that we're all going to sort of slowly adjust to. And it will probably feel more different than we necessarily expected. Tom, do you think, I mean, you and I spoke a little earlier about the, sort of the blame for the talks succeeding or failing. But once people begin to actually experience the consequences of Brexit, do you think there'll be any form of reckoning for the government? Or do you think that the promise of, of sovereignty having been returned will, will manage to override that? It's really hard to to know, isn't it? I remember um, when the euro was launched and there was a lot of talk that once people felt the euro and saw it and had it in their pocket when they'd gone on holiday, they would suddenly come round to it because it wouldn't seem so scary and foreign. Uh, And that obviously didn't happen. I don't know. Human nature is is a strange beast, isn't it? You You can probably hold multiple emotions at the same time, resentment and blame towards the EU if you're a Brexiteer and resentment and blame towards the UK government and the Brexiteers if you're a Remainer. Um, And there may be um, a crucial group somewhere in the middle, which is the difference between who gets, who fundamentally will get the blame and who won't. Um, And that's the the risk for Boris Johnson is that, you know, not 40% or 50% of the the country switch sides, but five or 10%. And that's enough for the Labour Party. And that's enough to really cause him damage. And these things can be felt in 
silly stories, whether it's families being stuck uh, in Dover trying to get uh, to their ski holiday this year. All of these things can start to seep into the public consciousness, I think. Um, one thing that I was having a chat with somebody the other day and they were worried about was fishing rights. Um, I think the EU have just published this morning, actually, some contingency plans for no deal in which they're asking for uh, a one-year extension to fishing rights um, in the UK waters. Now, let's assume that that isn't granted by the by the UK. You're, you're going to get a situation potentially where you're literally having sort of fist fights between fishermen in waters that Britain doesn't have enough boats to patrol. You know, you're going to get situations on the front of newspapers and on the nightly news where all of these like really kind of basic areas of sovereignty and control and nationhood are being um, challenged. And I think it's really hard to know how voters and the public in general will react to that, whether they'll feel aggrieved and who they will feel aggrieved with. And quite a difficult calculation for Keir Starmer, I think, on, on how, to, how to position the Labour Party in relation to all this. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really difficult situation. Take that fishing example. You know, if we are leaving with no deal and we end up, um, you know, in a very bad situation where there are tariffs being placed on uh, on all of our goods and checking all of the goods. So there are huge tailbacks uh, in Kent. Won't the public assume that the British government should be acting equally uh, and, and, you know, enforcing control of British waters or whatever else it might ha- uh, might be able to do, controlling um, uh, immigration, say. So these things, you don't quite know how they're going to play out, but I think you can start to see how it's problematic for the Labour Party. They have to strike a balance between saying, I told you so, and not seeming like they want Britain to fail in this regard. And that's going to be the thing that Boris Johnson hammers Keir Starmer over the head with over the next four years. You are talking to Britain down. You don't want us to succeed. Uh, you're a sellout. You know, you're you're on the EU side. And that, um, that you know, that that's always been a, a weakness uh, or a, uh, something that the Tories have accused the Labour Party of, uh, you know, of being soft and unpatriotic. So it is it is a weakness, but I, I think Keir Starmer has played it so far pretty well. You know, he has he has said, "I'm going to sign a deal." It's, it's the, you know it's game over now for Brexit, um, etc. So let, let's see, but um, it's tricky. And from Boris Johnson's point of view, looking all the way back to the referendum, do you think this is what he thought Brexit would look like in the end? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think if you go back and have a look at what they, um, you know, what they said, it was going to be the easiest deal in the world to sign. I think some of the um, some of the questions we uh, really just didn't come up in the in the referendum campaign, whether it was the uh, financial settlement. Do you remember that? That was a that was something that popped up early in the negotiations and appeared out of the blue. You know, and you're talking multi, multi billions of pounds. Um, that wasn't discussed. Uh, obviously, the Northern Irish situation, um, and then and then the election of a U.S. president who opposes Brexit and won't do a trade deal with you uh, unless you sign up to U.S. standards as well and you protect uh, uh, protect the Good Friday Agreement. You know, the world in which we agreed to Brexit in 2016 is actually very different from the world uh, where Brexit will become a reality in 2020. It's far more protectionist. Uh, it's far more um, 
nationalistic in some ways. Um, and it's, you know, if you go, go back to 2016, we had a special relationship with China at that point. That's gone. We've got a special relationship with the US. That's gone. Well, it hasn't gone, but you, you know, it's, it's very different. Um, so the, the whole world has changed while we've been negotiating with ourselves over this. Um, that's not to say that it won't, that Brexit can't work or succeed, but it'll succeed in a very different environment to the one we imagined. Thanks, Tom. And a last question for you, Maddie. So we've talked a lot uh, of history today, but what are we going to be focusing on in terms of Brexit in 2021? So I think there are sort of two aspects to this. I mean, the the first is sort of what Joe has been talking about in terms of, you know, phasing in checks at the border and, you know, businesses slowly adjusting to some of the some of the changes, both in terms of sort of immediately on the 1st of January, but also um, in terms of, you know, having to move to new label requirements, etc. next year. And I think that those sort of Brexit geeks um, will be focusing on that and what that looks like and how businesses are responding to that and how they're reacting. And I mean, you know, if we go back to our discussion about the Northern Ireland Protocol, there's obviously also still going to be some phasing in of arrangements there so I think there's sort of there is we're going to be talking about some of those issues but I think more broadly and it really picks up on what Tom was just saying I think the sort of bigger question that I think faces the UK at this point and I feel like there still is quite a gap in terms of the answer is what you know we voted to take back control we are going to be taking back control on the 1st of January what are we going to do with that control and you know we've seen the government pass certain bits of legislation through the house so the fisheries act the Agriculture Act, you know, they're starting to fill in some of the detail in some of the areas where they're taking back control. But I do think that that's going to be one of the biggest questions for this government next year and and sort of how how Britain's place in the world works. And again, sort of coming back to what Tom was just saying, you know, the last four years, there clearly has been huge amount of geopolitical change and so I think that that for the government anyway, I think that is going to be one of the biggest questions and also challenges in terms of painting a picture of what the future of the UK outside of the EU really looks like. I think they've largely actually been able to avoid having that conversation over the last four years. And, you know, if you come back to one of the key sticking points in the negotiations, it's all about trying to ensure Britain's sovereignty. But I still feel like there's still quite a big gap in terms of what that actually looks like. And and I think that once the UK sort of is, is sort of potentially resolve some of the negotiated negotiations although I would say you know conversations with the EU are going to continue next year because the UK and the EU will continue to work on things together um, and also you know they, they, there's going to be a sort of there will be shared interests where they'll want to continue to cooperate and bits of the agreement might be sort of evolve over time but I do think that what what I, I would hope to see is that that you know, in January, February next year, there starts to be a broader conversation about the future of the UK and and sort of, yeah, as I say, Britain's place in the world and how it fits within the sort of changing geopolitical structures. Plenty more for the Institute for Government to look at and do research on. So that's the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Maddie Timont-Jack, Jay Marshall, Jess Sargent, and especially to Tom McTay. Great to have you all with us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more IFG discussions, then please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. There's some great new shows for you there, including a fantastic discussion on what the Biden presidency means to the UK. And later this week, a closer look at whether business is ready for Brexit. And do please leave us a review. That's it for today. The never-ending Brexit story really is nearing its end, isn't it? <laughs>